0: Welcome back to the next episode of Arbitral Insights, which is part two of Reed Smith's five-part series on arbitration for the life sciences industry. I'm JP Duffy. I'm an international arbitration partner based in New York that has a strong focus on the life sciences industry. I act as counsel in life sciences arbitrations and sit as an arbitrator in those disputes as well. I'm listed on the AAA ICDR life sciences arbitration roster, as well as the arbitral lists of several institutions. Joining me today to um, to discuss our topic is Iqbal Hussein, who's a corporate partner that focuses on life sciences transactions. He advises on a range of corporate and commercial transactions, including public and private cross-border mergers and acquisitions, private equity transactions and investments, capital market transactions, licensing, joint ventures, strategic considerations, and general corporate matters. So today in part two, we're going to focus on how arbitration can help preserve long-term collaboration agreements in the life sciences industry. And specifically, we'll examine how arbitration can help companies in long-term collaboration agreements formally resolve disputes that they can't resolve on their own while still continuing to work together afterwards. That's a really critical feature that we'll discuss in detail today. So let me set the stage for why we're talking about this. First, industry forces in the life sciences sector are driving increased collaboration around the world, such as joint ventures and licensing arrangements. As Iqbal will explain a bit further in a moment, those are not the only types of collaboration agreements. Collaborations can span everything from manufacturing and distribution to partnering arrangements. It's just a generic term that we use for all the different types of agreements that can arise in this context. Many of those collaboration agreements are
1: long-term agreements that are designed to last for a decade or more. Absolutely, thanks JP for the introduction. So, look, I think whilst you know, sort of, you're you're absolutely correct to say that the industry forces in the life science sector are driving increased collaboration. But it's also true to say that you know, long-term collaborations is very much entrenched in how pharmaceutical the pharmaceutical industry is is operated. So if you look at, you know, from the very outset of uh, product development, you get into collaborations, whether that's collaborating to identify and and develop a product or getting to a, a licensing arrangement or even a JP. And then you also have the collaborations as you think about the product commercialization. And at that stage, it's not just about, you know, two parties cooperating to actually commercialize the product, but also there are many other players that you would tend to collaborate with, such as um, manufacturers. You know, many of these relationships are absolutely fundamental to ensuring a successful commercialization of an associated financial return from these products. And these types of long-term relationships are absolutely vital. You know, talking about manufacturing, for example, you need to really think about at the very outset as to who's going to be doing the manufacturing. And obviously, you know, increasingly many pharmaceutical companies are deciding to outsource their manufacturing. And in doing so, it's it's absolutely critical to have any manufacturer that can be the manufacturer in the long term because for many of these products, you know, they are highly regulated. As part of that regulatory process, even your manufacturer and the manufacturing processes are, are regulated and to move from one manufacturer to another, it can take a number of years and a lot of planning and, and a lot of, lot of costs. So it's really important, can't emphasize enough how important it is that when you're thinking about these deals from the outset, these long-term types deals, long-term type partnerships, to really think about how not only will the partnership function, but also in the event that there are issues that come up, how those issues are going to be resolved without breaking the partnership.
0: Yeah, and that's really that's really helpful and really critical to keep in mind as we discuss the Iqbal. What we're really looking to do here is offer a solution um, for dispute resolution that allows those long-term partnerships to to continue. Some of them, you know, are meant to continue, as I say, for a decade, but many are meant to continue for 20 years or more, and some are envisioned to continue as long as the parties want them to which can be much longer than 20 years. Now, what's interesting here is a lot of these collaborations are occurring cross-border with increased frequency. And many are now being entered into by companies at different developmental stages from different backgrounds with different corporate cultures and between companies that are subject to different market pressures. So it's relatively unsurprising that a number of these agreements will spawn disputes um, that are bound to arise with increasing frequency the longer the agreement operates. And as Iqbal points out, some of those those disputes are going to be minor ones. Some of the parties can resolve themselves through informal discussions or through joint steering committees that many of these agreements envision and establish, but some will be more serious and more complicated and are going to require the intervention of a third party who can provide a conclusive and binding resolution for those disputes. Now, I think we should take a minute here to mention mediation, and I'll I'll turn this over to Iqbal, But we will not discuss mediation in great detail. But I think it's worth mentioning. Iqbal, why don't you why don't you take a stab at at filling people in on on mediation in this context?
1: Sure. Like in in terms of you know the life of a partnership or collaboration, if you like, you know there are going to be multiple issues, as as JP points out. And and some of those are going to be smaller and some of those are going to be more significant. And and so often what you would provide for in an agreement at the outset is an increasing level of escalation through which these issues are are resolved. And, you know, there are a number of factors that go into thinking about why you go through these processes, which we will come on to later on in, in this podcast. But what those issues result is that the aim of it is to Resolve simpler issues at the local level, at the level of the operation of, of the business, and then to move it up, higher up the chain, such as, you know, senior management or a steering committee, if you have a steering committee, but, you know, to manage it within the relationship. Where that relationship isn't working, then, as you point out, if you, you know, there are different ways people can, can deal with it through external parties, including arbitration and, and court proceedings, which we will come on to. But one of those is, is mediation, and often, you know, sort of many people look at mediation almost as an intermediary between, you know, that stage where the parties have reached a situation where they can't resolve the matter themselves, but do not want to go into that formal process of arbitration or litigation through through courts. And that process is often through appointing a mediator to mediate on their behalf. And they would usually allot a time frame within which the a mediation process would be adhered to in order to try and find a a solution. That may well be the, the correct modem in certain situations, particularly where an issue that's a fairly simple issue just requires an external mediator with some level of expertise that could come and help the parties bridge the gap. But in other instances, you know, it may not be the most appropriate modem.
0: Yeah. And one of the reasons it can be inappropriate is that you do need oftentimes where a third party has to get involved, a conclusive binding outcome. And that is one of the drawbacks to mediation. It's not a binding outcome. It can take a lot of time and money in that regard, but it can serve a function in appropriate disputes. Now, where you do need a binding outcome, there's really two options. And one is court litigation. But court litigation, particularly in many common law jurisdictions, we have extensive and invasive discovery and a highly adversarial atmosphere, can in its own right kill the collaboration by creating animosity that prevents the parties from working together in the future, even if the underlying dispute is not one that warrants that outcome. And that's really what we're trying to avoid here. As Paul pointed out earlier, a lot of these long-term collaborations have strong economic benefits for both parties and strong economic incentives to keep them going, so you want to do that if you can. Arbitration as an alternative provides a binding resolution that the parties and the agreement can survive because of some features that we've discussed in part one of this series, including a more civilized environment, confidentiality, more targeted disclosure, and procedural flexibility. And as we'll discuss... Arbitration creates a less combative dispute resolution environment that allows the parties to a life sciences collaboration agreement to conclusively resolve their dispute without poisoning the relationship or killing the collaboration. And that's really, that's really what we're getting at today.
1: Just to add to that, AP, you know, sort of when you talk to the to the business, you know, when you talk to the people that are leading that business relationship and also responsible for ultimately, you know, seeing these products go to the market and and be successful, arbitration or getting into disputes is, is really the last thing they want to do. But if they do end up there, they want to find a modem that sort of really allows the actual issue to be dealt with in a way that's confidential and civilized And that enables that business and that relationship to continue. So I think as lawyers, we often sort of are approached by our business people to find a solution. And obviously, court processes is one of those solutions. But commercially thinking, it's always a more preferred route if you can resolve it without breaking that relationship.
0: Yeah. And that's really critical. So let's talk about one of the first features of arbitration that makes that possible. And the first one is confidentiality. So as many people generally appreciate, but don't appreciate in great detail, I think, uh, many court proceedings are not confidential. And that can result in commercially sensitive materials ending up, ending up in the public domain. It can result in the party's positions on delicate issues being publicly aired. That leads to public posturing and hard stances by parties for the benefit of the market and parties taking positions that they might not otherwise take in a confidential setting. It also prevents parties from settling as soon as they otherwise might because they don't want to be publicly perceived to be weak. Now, arbitration can be made highly confidential through appropriate drafting. And through appropriate drafting, you can shield commercially sensitive information from competitors in the market And you can really keep the environment one in which parties can openly and honestly air their grievances and their positions um, without fear of, of the consequences of that, which really results in better party satisfaction and better outcomes. And critically, you can avoid a lot of that posturing that goes on in court litigation. And one of the things that I think is really material about all that is parties often feel more comfortable working together after a dispute is resolved when they both had the ability to say their piece, confidentiality, and third parties don't know the details. That, that I think, really goes to the crux of Iqbal's point, which is you, you want to keep these agreements going, but you still need to resolve the dispute in a binding way, and arbitration really permits that. Iqbal, do you have any comments you want to offer about confidentiality? Because I think it is one of those really critical features.
1: Yes, no, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right, and I agree with everything you've said. AP, you know, confidentiality is really a critical factor, and particularly now that we're living in a, you know, such a such a global world, and where you've got so much media attention on on every uh, issue and every litigation that goes, uh, and I think this recent, you know, COVID situation has, has highlighted actually some of that in the sense that there's been a lot of discussion around force majeure due to supply issues and supply constraints, and, and before you know it, you have governments it, it, you know, starting to intervene and, and get involved or have opinions about you know, how businesses should go about trying to resolve things, and, and a lot of those things are not good for business, and therefore you know, keeping that confidentiality and, and in that confidential setting is absolutely critical.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And Iqbal and I were fortunate enough to do a, um, to do a webinar on this early in the, the COVID process earlier in the spring that you can find on the internet. I would definitely recommend that to people because I think a lot of the things that we discussed back in, I want to say March or April, really highlight why confidentiality is so critical. So let's move on as well next to reasonable disclosure, uh, because I think that's a, a key feature of all this as well. Discovery is not only one of the costliest phases of a life sciences dispute, but it can also be one of the most contentious phases. And it's something that's really become weaponized in court proceedings, in my view, as a means of driving up the other party's cost to force settlement, uh, which can generate innumerable satellite disputes and a lot of resentment amongst the parties. And what that can do is it can take a dispute that doesn't necessarily warrant terminating the agreement and poison the relationship so much that the parties can't continue to work together afterwards. And arbitration helps avoid that. It generally allows for a more targeted disclosure process that's directed to the material issues in dispute. It's usually more proportionate to the dispute than in court proceedings, and it really helps reduce the amount of bickering between the parties that can generate significant animosity and significant costs which really creates a toxic environment that could poison the collaboration. And I think this is a good point in the discussion as well to raise the notion of arbitrator expertise because it really, it really bears on the reasonable disclosure points. One of the things that makes this entire process different is than court proceedings is you have, rather than a national judge who may or may not have some experience with life sciences disputes, You have a a party that's been chosen by the disputants to resolve things, who has a lot of industry expertise. We talk a great deal more about this in part one, but I think it's worth raising again here because that person with expertise is also the person that's deciding any kind of discovery disputes that arise in arbitration, and that person usually has much more ability to sort of cut cut through the noise and get right to what's material, which really does help keep disclosure reasonable. And helps focus things so that the parties are really zeroed in on what's important and they can that helps them get through the dispute in a way that again preserves these long-term relationships. Iqbal, what's your experience
1: with arbitrator expertise in the life sciences sector? I think you know, many of these issues that come up, while some of them are, you know, sort of common sense issues or easy to resolve issues, there are issues that will come up that are invariably you know, sort of uh, difficult to resolve and have a lot of gray areas in them and, and require some level of, of interpretation. Some of those, for example, could be a dispute over whether a product is contaminated and on whose watch it's, it got contaminated on. Things like that can get very, very complex and, and, and complicated. And it could just come down to, you know, one party's view uh, against the other party's view. And so having somebody who has real understanding and real depth of expertise in the particular field is absolutely critical. Another setting could be, for example, if you're collaborating at an earlier stage of an R&D type collaboration, which ultimately will become a commercial relationship, there may be certain milestones that you've agreed. And as we all know with scientific milestones, it's not always going to be black and white as to whether the milestone has been met. And, you know, it can be interpreted in in many different ways. Having somebody with expertise that can come in and pine on whether that milestone has or has not been met is, is absolutely invaluable. And whilst, you know, in a court process, you can have, you know, you can call experts in an arbitral setting that is confidential. In my experience, you know, that enables that process to go a lot more smoothly. And therefore, I think that that you know, sort of really helps the parties move the discussion along with people that have real expertise in, in the relevant field. I think the other thing I will say as well, JP, is that within that arbitration uh, proceeding, the other thing not to underestimate is, is actually the time element. It's really important to resolve these disputes, particularly if you've got a standing relationship and a business to continue moving. If the product is already commercialized. You don't want that dispute to be going on for for a long time. You need to get that dispute resolved as soon as possible. And I think that, um, as you pointed out, the arbitration process is going to enable you to get to a a quicker resolution. And that's not something that we should underestimate.
0: No, I think those are excellent points. And that actually segues really nicely to our final point as to why arbitration helps preserve long-term collaborations. And that's procedural flexibility. So as you alluded to, Iqbal, speed has its own value, particularly in this context. Because what we're really trying to do here is keep this, this relationship moving along and make sure that business is functioning in the background, that the dispute doesn't dominate the, the business purpose of the, of the relationship. And procedural flexibility here plays a really strong role in that. So in arbitration, unlike court litigation, where you have a one-size-fits-all approach to every dispute the parties in arbitration can fashion their own procedures for how that dispute is going to be resolved. And that's really advantageous in a long-term relationship. And let me give you a real-life example. Let's say you've got a dispute that arises over royalties that may be owed for either a licensing arrangement or some other similar collaboration. You don't want a full-blown dispute resolution process for that type of dispute in most instances, Because it's really not warranted. And if you were to take that dispute to court, what would happen is in most court procedures, you're going to have pleadings, you're going to have a phase where the parties go through discovery, you're going to have perhaps witness testimony, all these things that may be inappropriate for that type of dispute. And that's going to cost a lot of time or cost a lot of money and take a lot of time unnecessarily. Whereas in arbitration, you could have that type of dispute and say, okay, look, we've got a dispute about royalties. We've got disputes about what may fall within a royalty agreement. Let's not spend a whole lot of time trying to resolve this because we don't want to waste that time. We want to keep doing business. Let's just create a very simple, streamlined process for resolving that so that we can both figure out what's owed, what's going to be paid, and continue moving on with our lives. And that ability to do that, I think is really critical. Iqbal, what's your experience with that
1: from the business side? Again, I totally agree with that. I think that level of procedural flexibility is is important. And actually, even at a formal level, I find that parties often are um, at the outset are quite sensible about you know how a process is going to unfold in terms of dispute resolution, depending on what type of issue it is or or what kind of value is associated with it. So often, for example, they may say, well, you know, if the dispute is at or below a, a certain level, we will go through arbitration using, you know, one arbitrator. If it's above a certain level, we will agree to resolve that dispute through three arbitrators. And then, you know, as, as you mentioned, for example, royalties, again, you can have that ple- flexibility where you can say, well, if there's a royalty dispute, there is going to be a process to audit before we even get to arbitration. So there are just so many procedural flexibilities. And I think those procedural flexibilities are critical to, again, you know, maintain that that relationship.
0: Well, that's great. And I think, you know, one other thing that comes out of that as well, and it comes out of something you've just said for me is there's buy-in from the parties there. And when the parties have some say in how things are resolved, they tend to find that the result is more palatable. And that ultimately helps them live with each other and helps keep that agreement alive as well. That concludes our discussion of how arbitration helps preserve long-term collaboration agreements in the life sciences space. Thank you to my partner Iqbal Hussein for his insights, which are invaluable. And I want to thank you for listening you should feel free to reach out to either one of us with any questions you might have, and I look forward to having you tune in for future episodes in the series. Look forward to speaking with you soon. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Jose Estigarraga at jia at reedsmith.com.